Good morning. Welcome. We're glad you're here. If you're visiting with us, we're always especially glad to have guests, and uh, you are welcome here. Today's the first Sunday of the month. We will be sharing in the Lord's table at the end of the sermon time, and uh, You don't have to be a member here to take part in communion service with us. If you have a a relationship with Christ, if your life is one that's marked by repentance and faith, then we would encourage you to take part with us. You'll want to have one of these. If you forgot to grab one on the way in, you probably want to slip out and uh, grab one of those so that you'll be ready uh, later in the service. You know, they say that all good things come to an end. And uh, today is a day of transition for a few. Today's the last day of Pastor Casey's sabbatical. I saw him here earlier. Casey, where are you? There he is. He's, he's over here. He's off the clock today, folks. Okay? Just let's remember that. But after today's over, he's open game. Amen? <laughs> No one is more excited that Casey's sabbatical is coming to an end than this guy right here. So excited to have uh, you back after your time of break. It's also a kind of a neat day for uh, one of our newer members, uh, Luis and Katie. Wave, will you guys wave? They're sitting over here in their traditional spot against the wall, and they've been members pretty short time, but. Today, I understand their car is packed, loaded, and after church, maybe they'll grab lunch, and they're hitting the road uh, on a protracted journey to the land of Wisconsin, and they're going to begin missionary training school with an organization, uh, New Tribes Mission. Many of you have heard of it. It's the new name of their school out there in Wisconsin, studying to serve the Lord abroad. You, you want to greet them as you have opportunity before they leave, uh, Luis and Katie. God bless you guys. We're going to continue to uphold you in prayer and look forward to reports and times when you come back and can share with us uh, what the Lord is doing in your life as you continue on for him. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to take it uh, open with me this morning to 1 Samuel. My uh, plan this morning is to cover two chapters, chapter 27 and 28. I've titled uh, this message, The Dark Side of Leadership, because in this event, we are going to see uh, two episodes, one in the life of David and another in the life of Saul, which are going to show them as frail, broken, prone to sin individuals. Um, I was thinking a few weeks back, I was home with my foot in the air most of the week. Supposed to be at scout camp, but I, I had a, a foot fracture and I was resting that up uh, under doctor's orders. And so I sat in my uh, chair in my front room and, and watched stupid things on TV for days on end, you know, what you do when you're sick. One of the things I watched was a documentary on the Watergate incident. Now, for those of you of a generation uh, my age and older, that's just yesterday that happened. But for those of you perhaps younger than me, you may have heard of it. But the Watergate incident was something that happened that uh, brought indictments against the president of the United States, Richard Nixon. 
And it came to uh, be found out that Nixon and his inner circle staff had been guilty of abusing their power, of um, coercion, of intimidation, of trying to meddle with election results. And when the truth started coming out, they strategically denied any culpability, any awareness of it. Some of the staff uh, and hires were kind of pinned with blame, but eventually more and more came out, including the famed Nixon tapes, which recorded most of what had been alleged against the president and his team. Nixon was impeached by Congress, which is a very strong stance in our governmental structure to come against someone. And, and uh, prior to him being ousted from office, he tendered his resignation. But that whole incident brought to public awareness something that had probably been thought of but not been said out loud for so long, and that is, can we really trust our elected leaders? Is it possible to trust the office of the President of the United States? Those were the dark days of the Nixon administration. We, of course, are much more mature, having lived through the last eight years, uh, knowing that, you know, can we really trust political leaders? The answer, eh, sometimes, uh, but not always. We have seen dark days, both in our current president and the one before him and the one before him and the one before him. And we understand this, that our highest government leaders are frail, broken, prone to sin individuals. But the Bible wants to make very plain to us that that is not a new trend, that's an old trend, and that even in the great leaders of yesterday's gone by, we have to recognize that they are made of feet of clay. They are broken and fallen individuals, and though they may do many, many good things, every one of them is sinful and selfish and broken. At the close of chapter 26 last week, uh, we read the final verse. Notice with me in your Bible, the final verse of ver is verse 25. It says, Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. We aren't told how much time passes from the close of chapter 26 to the opening of chapter 27, but when read in context, we would conclude that there is some time that has passed between these two events. When David and Saul part ways at the end of chapter 26, they'll not see one another again this side of heaven. And yet chapter 27, where we start today, is going to open with these words. And I want to put them on the screen because they're helpful for us to focus on. The opening of verse 1 says, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. Now again, we're not told how much time has passed, but 
I believe that certainly the context is that there has been some passage of time. And David, one day after parting ways with Saul, is going to sit down. He's going to be depressed. He's going to be discouraged. And he's going to tell himself something that is not true. He's going to say to himself, now I will die one day by the hand of Saul. We have the advantage of reading back into history. We know that's not the case. But this day, that is what David says in his heart. And part of our reaction can be, really, David, come on, brother. You know better than that. You know that God has been with you. He's shown himself faithful to you over and over and over again. God has sustained you through every attack that Saul has mounted. And so we ask the question, what is the difference this time? As David says in his heart, I'm going to die by Saul's hand. And I want to suggest that I think the problem David finds himself in has a lot to do with who he is listening to. We know from uh, surveying the story of David that, and many of these passages we've already covered in the book of 1 Samuel. Some are going to come later in 2 Samuel, but we know that the first time that David faced the Philistines in the wilderness, in chapter 23, verse 2, it says, David inquired of the Lord. When David's men were afraid of the Philistines, we read in chapter 23, verse 4, that David inquired of the Lord. When attacked by the Amalekites in chapter 30, David inquired of the Lord. When puzzled about what to do after Saul's death, later in the beginning of 2 Samuel, we will read David inquires of the Lord. When crowned king of the nation, and pursued by the Philistines in 2 Samuel 5, David inquired of the Lord. David seems to have God's number on speed dial. He's just focused on what God is going to say to him. When confused, David talks to God. When challenged, he talks to God. When he's afraid, he talks to God. Well, most of the time he does, but this day... David talks to himself. And David said in his heart, this is the problem that begins our story. Um, it's a problem of bad advice. Remember this with me. David has been anointed by Samuel to be king. David's kingship has been confirmed by, by the king's son, Jonathan, twice even the king, Saul himself, confirmed that David would be king. David's kingship is confirmed by Abigail, by miracle after miracle. But on this day, David soaks and sulks and listens to his own gloomy heart. And, and I think there's a lesson for us. It's often on the heels of some great spiritual victory, like chapter 26 closes with that we will find ourselves under attack. It is then when we've expended 
most of our energies in battle. It's then when we've used up all that was in our tanks spiritually that we can so easily stumble. After the victory at Jericho, Joshua experienced the attack of Ai. After the fire fell on Mount Carmel, Elijah suffered a lapse of faith and ran. After his boldness in the upper room, Peter denied the Lord three times. And so, after a great victory in sparing Saul's life in the camp in chapter 26, David buckles under the pressure of continued harassment. And David said in his heart, I'm going to fall at Saul's hand one day. I want to ask you something. Do you, how many of us talk to ourselves? Right. Do you talk to yourself? I, I think we do that. Uh, my wife has whole conversations with herself. And I've had to learn to distinguish what well, she's not talking to me right now. She's just thinking out loud, you know, processing Talking to yourself is not the problem, right? We all talk to ourselves. We talk to ourselves often, and that isn't the problem. It's the problem comes in what we say to ourselves. I want to share with you a quote from uh, Dale Ralph Davis's commentary on this passage. Uh, uh, Davis says this, David was talking to himself, and what he kept saying to himself determined his action. What you say and keep saying to the center of you will direct your way. All of us propagandize our souls. That is, we constantly talk to ourselves. And then he gives this aside. Not many of, this do, not many of us do this audibly, but we continually do it. And if you don't believe it, you haven't been listening, and yourself is probably very angry with you for being so unreceptive, which is very cute. And then he says, how crucial it is to feed our souls true propaganda, especially about the adequacy of our God. Amen? We, we, the problem isn't talking to yourself. It's what are you saying to yourself? I love that picture in Psalm 42 and 43 where the psalmist, psalmist says to himself three different times, why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why are you so dismayed? Put your hope in God. And I can picture the psalmist grabbing himself by the shirt collar and lifting himself up and saying, come on, knock it off. Talking to ourselves isn't the problem in fact, talking to yourself can be a very healthy spiritual discipline. But the problem this day is that what David is saying to himself is suspect. Notice as verse 1 continues, David says, There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. Isn't it interesting? If you remember earlier in our story, David tried going to the Philistines once in the very beginning of his sojourn. 
I'm guessing that was probably seven or eight years prior to this incident because my best guess is that David spent the decade of his 20s on the run from Saul. And he's toward the tail end of that, so he's in his late 20s by now, probably. And that time David went alone. Remember he had to fake insanity to escape with his life? And he let the, the spittle run down his beard and he threw himself on the ground. But this time, David comes up with this great idea. I know, I'm going to try what I did so many years ago. I'm going to go and present myself to the Philistine king. Well, I wonder how this is going to work out. Let's look at what the narrator says beginning at verse 2. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. Well, this time, the story is certainly different. David doesn't go alone. David goes with his family with an army of 600 soldiers and all of their families, perhaps a group now, maybe two or 3,000 people coming and presenting themselves to the Philistine king. And it's interesting that in verse 2, there's something almost sinister in the words, went over. It says, so David went over, he and the 600 men who were with him. You see, David crossed a boundary that day. And it wasn't just a geographic boundary. David went over to the other side. This was quite different from the last time when, we, when he had gone to Gath alone, probably hoping to remain unnoticed. But this time, David brought with him this mob of men. And it seems that at least that king understands David's offer as offering the services of he and his men to the Philistine king. Why would that king have accepted this group? Well, probably because Achish and the other Philistine lords rejoiced to see the rift that existed between David and Saul. Scholars guess, and here are some of the reasons that I read this week. One said, without David, Saul lacked military leadership sufficient to eliminate the Philistine threat Without Saul, David lacked a power base from which to operate. The king thought, how great to see my enemy now divided. And I have this opportunity to divide the enemy, which will help me to conquer them. Another scholar said that they believed Ahish recognized as soon as David did attack his own people, he would lose forever any possibility of changing sides. And so the narrator tells us that this plan accomplishes exactly what David thought it would. Notice with me verse 4. It says, it says, 
And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Which means that David, after years of being on the run, this this unfortunate plan of of surrendering, of, of committing himself to the enemy king, well, it did accomplish what he thought. For the first time in many years, David is no longer gonna be pursued by Saul. Which means that David and his men are gonna get a good night's sleep, maybe for the first time in years. Not worrying about the attack of their Jewish brothers upon them. The story will continue in verse five. It says, then David said to Achish, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? Now David's thinking is the last thing the king wants is 3,000 of us underfoot. Uh, draining his supplies. He goes to the king, can you just give us a little place out in the country that we can dwell? Verse six, so that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. The narrator lets us know that when the king gave David this place to live, that city would become forever lost as a Philistine city and become a Jewish city. Verse 7, and the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. So here we have David defecting to the enemy. He led his men and their families into the land of idols and false gods, and he pitches his tent in the backyard of Goliath. One commentator called it the pasture land of Satan himself. That's where they were living. 16 months of sleep at night without fear of attack from Saul. David has essentially spent the decade of his 20s as a fugitive. And now he's maturing and growing and learning life's hard lessons one by one. In so many ways, David is a fascinating study. Because we're going to see that the Bible will pull no punches in describing him and his fallenness. David is never presented as a poster child of moral perfection. David is good and wise and strong and godly, but he's not perfect. And we are not to venerate him as some worldly man uh, from another place, as many in Judaism today do I think the point of our passage is to pull back the curtain and to show him in some of his dark moments when his attitudes and behaviors are off point. How else can we take this move to join the enemy's forces? It just makes no sense to us. And this new alliance will prove to be very tricky as the story goes. Notice in verse 8 and following The narrator now tells us, Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old as far as Shur to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, the garments, 
and come back to Achish. And when Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeremielites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. All of those would have been Jewish cities, Jewish territories. And David, verse 11, would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, so David is done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Ahish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. You see, David and his men have become raiders. They have become desert pirates. They go and they take what they want. And when they would go and take, the narrator tells us very plainly, they would kill everyone that was there. They would leave no one alive. They would just bring back the possessions with them. And we would read this and, and rightly so think this doesn't feel right. This doesn't sound right. This is morally wrong. This isn't something consistent with a man who loved God and wanted to live for God, right? Well, yeah, but there is another way of looking at it. And I think that way back in verse 8, the, the narrator gives us a particular clue because he tells about David going out and raiding against these cities and peoples of the desert. And he said that those cities and those peoples in verse 8 were the inhabitants of the land from of old. Why would the narrator put that in our story? These were the inhabitants of the land from of old. And I want to tell you that uh, the Jewish mind would peek right at that statement. Oh, those, oh, those people. We know about those people. Those were the people who were the inhabitants of the land of promise who had come in and taken possession of the Jewish nation's land when the Jews were in captivity in Egypt. They'd essentially moved in and squatted behind them in their homes and their cities and their land. And when Moses led the nation of Israel out of captivity and brought them to the brink of the promised land, he gave the Jewish people this command, you are to go and take your land back. You're to go and strike the people who have taken what is yours. This isn't their land, it's your land. You're to, you're, you're to, you're to totally destroy them. Because they're wicked. They are abominable pagans. They have done everything wrong. They've set up all these shrines to these false deities. They're, they're perverse in their ways. They kill their own children as an act of worship. Everything about them is wrong. Go in and drive them out and utterly destroy them. That was the command to the Israelites. That was the banner that Joshua raised up as he led the tribes in. But we know from the story, from our, our study of the book of Joshua, Israel never really fully drove out all of the inhabitants. They drove out many, but not all. And the narrator is picking up this clue and saying, David's going out and he's, he, he's it's almost as if David's picking up Moses' challenge again, generations later to go in and utterly destroy the inhabitants of the land from of old. 
And if that satisfies your moral conscience in some way, let's not be too quick to think this is all positive and good and godly, because what does David do when he comes back? He proceeds to lie to Achish. David, where have you been? What? I see all this bounty that you've captured in battle. Where did it come from? Oh, I took it from, you know, these Jewish settlements in the south. That's what Negev is. It's the south. I went down there. And Achish says, I got him. He's, he's, he's set up war against his own people. But the reality of the situation? No. They have been destroying Canaanite cities from of old. And all of this is going to lead to a pretty significant quandary because David's ruse works. Akish believes that, that David is serving him. He's able to raid those wicked Canaanite villages, take what he wants to live on, pay his tributes to the Philistine king, and then the Philistine king thinks he's done something completely different from that. And all of that seems to be working just perfectly until we get to chapter 28 and verse 1. Notice our next chapter. It says, In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. Uh oh. David, what are you going to do now? Are you going to go and fight alongside the Philistines against Saul and the Jewish people? You can't do that. If he did that, he would forever forfeit any hope of becoming Israel's next king. What on earth? is David going to do? I want you to notice David's response in verse 2. It says, David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. <laughs> that, is a, that is an unspecific response if I've ever heard one. What is David going to do? Well, David says, well, you'll see what I can do. And Achish, it continues, said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. This vague response of David is leading to this, I just think this is high drama in the text. <laughs> and it leaves us on the verge of this really epic story. What's gonna happen next? Well, notice verse three. Because in the midst of this great drama, the narrator interrupts the story with verse 3. He says in verse 3, now Samuel had died. Well, we already knew that. We were told that many chapters ago. Now, he inserts in this chapter, now Samuel had died and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city. And Saul, the narrator tells us, had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. Well, this is all context. 
they were put out of the land. What, why is the narrator doing that? And what we need to understand here is the whole story of David and this high drama, the narrator is gonna push the pause button. It's almost like that, that thing that happens on our TV when they're in the ninth inning, there's two outs, two on, two strikes on the batter. You can't wait to see what happens. And then you hear that beep, and up on the screen says, this regular programming is interrupted for this important message. And you're thinking, ah, I want to see how it ends. But here comes this interruption in the story. Samuel has died. That's old news. Saul had put away all the witches, all the mediums and the necromancers, people who would speak to the dead, all these weird, wicked things. That's really old news. But he's bringing all of this back to our attention Notice with me verses 4 and following. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. And when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And Saul inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. And then Saul said to his servant, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. You see, when Saul doesn't get a response from God, Saul's saying, Lord, what do I do? The Philistines are coming against me. Lord, what do I do next? And God is silent in response. And so Saul says, well, now what am I supposed to do? Samuel, the last prophet, is gone. I've already driven all the mediums and the necromancers out of the land of Israel. What am I going to do? And so he says to one of his servants, hey, I need you to go find me one of those mediums, someone who communicates with the dead. And this practice was among the abominable practices of the Canaanites. This was a practice that God had prohibited for his children. This story is one of the most familiar stories in all of 1 Samuel. Um, and it is Saul and the witch of Endor. And as we read it this morning, you are going to be puzzled by what happens and I want you to know that the account that we're about to read is both factual and real. I believe every detail of it, though I cannot explain it to those who will wonder what's going on and why God would allow this. I would simply say to you this morning, God does allow this in this instance. And it is presented in a way that is credible and factual and that this medium will indeed speak to the dead. Well, let's read the account, and it's a bit longer. I just want to read beginning at verse 8. It says, So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. 
Verse 11, then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. And the woman, and when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he's wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Verse 15, then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I'm in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me. And God has turned away from me and answers me no more either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I should do. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hands of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hands of the Philistines. Again, I'm not going to try to explain all that's going on here, but I, I will say this. God has allowed this. And, and Saul, through this witch, has called up the spirit of Samuel and spoken to him. And Samuel's message to Saul is so consistent with the earlier messages he gave while alive. You have not obeyed God. God has taken the kingdom from you and given it to David. And then Samuel gives him the worst news a man could get. You will be destroyed in this war. Israel will be taken captive. And you and your sons will die. And tomorrow you will be with me here in death. Let's see how the story ends. Verse 20, then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant." Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. And he refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants together with the woman urged him and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Verse 24, now the woman had a fattened calf in the house and she quickly killed it. She took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants and they ate. And then they rose and went away that night. Chapter 28 will close here. And next week, we'll look at chapter 29. 
where the play button is going to get pressed again, and we're going to see what happens with David. But these two chapters are the Bible's way of pulling back the curtain and showing us the dark side of leaders. Two leaders who made bad choices, two leaders who did the wrong thing, two leaders who ventured into territory they should not have done. And we're going to see how God is at work in it. It's interesting to me that at the end of 28, Saul has to be persuaded by those with him to eat. All the while, he's thinking to himself, how can I eat this meal, probably my last ever, when I know that tomorrow I and my sons will die? It reminds me of another last supper. That supper took place the night before Jesus' arrest and beating where he would be convicted on false charges. He would be tortured and put to death. But the night before that whole process began, Jesus shared a last meal with his friends. But unlike Saul, Jesus said, I am eager for this meal. Saul says, I don't want it. Jesus says, I'm looking forward to it. And in that last meal, Jesus wanted us to remember him. And we ought to be reminded this morning that there is only one leader that is worthy of our devotion and our worship. And it's not a president, nor a king, nor a military leader, but it is the Son of God, the one who uniquely and singly will never let us down. That is why in the Last Supper, Jesus took common elements from the table. Um, he took some bread and he took some wine. And when he took those, I think this has everything to do with his eagerness. He said, I want to I give you a picture of what these things will represent going forward. Every time you eat this bread, I want you to remember my body, which is broken for you. And every time you drink from this cup, I want you to remember my blood, which is spilled for you. And for centuries, people of faith have remembered the work of our great leader by bread and the cup. This morning, we're going to, again, remember that great leader, the Lord Jesus, in these elements. The Bible says that this memorial service is reserved for people who are believers in Christ, who have trusted him, who have turned from their sin and turned toward Christ. And if you're with us this morning and that is your story, then you're invited to take part. If you're visiting with us and you maybe haven't completely made your mind up about what you believe about God and this stuff, I just want you to know you're welcome. And I would urge you out of respect for this ancient tradition to simply watch as those of us who are people of faith do as we were commanded by the Lord Jesus. Before this, you need to take some time to prepare your heart, examine your heart, confess sin, make sure you're in right relationship with others. If you've got unconfessed sin or a broken relationship and you haven't done your part yet, you shouldn't take this. But if your conscience is clean and you, you feel you have that permission, this act of worship and remembrance is so crucial to our faith. And so I want to encourage you now to take a few moments and to prepare your own heart before we 
take part together. Let's do that in some quiet reflectiveness. Father God, every one of us are in need of your forgiveness and grace, not just once, but um, every day, all of our lives. Uh, Lord, we acknowledge that our passage this morning has admonished us against uh, paying too much homage to human leaders. Um, We have a way of putting them on pedestals and thinking of them as almost perfect, and we should not do that. But Lord, when it comes to Christ, the fact of the matter is we cannot think too highly of him. We cannot overestimate the power of his goodness and grace and kindness toward us. And as we come again, Lord, to remember his broken body and his spilled blood on the cross, we come with hearts of thankfulness to you praying that you would receive just an expression of love and worship from our hearts to you even as we eat these elements together. And we thank you for reminding us over and over again of how much you love us. It's in the name of Jesus I pray, amen. Why don't you uh, avail yourselves of the morsel of bread that's at one end here. The Bible says that that night as Christ gathered around the table with his disciples, he took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this now in remembrance of me. And now you'll want to carefully open the cup portion. And the story continues. After supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you again for the meaningful ways that you have shown your love to us. May our hearts please you this morning as we worship you in thankfulness for all that you have done for us. And it is in the name of Jesus that we rejoice and thank you for who you are. And all God's people said, amen.